amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Lords of Limited. My name is Ben Warney, and joining me on the line, as always, is Ethan Dada Sachs. We heard maybe some Jonah first words over the Discord today. Yeah, yeah. I think a little bit more um, coincidental babbling than anything, but we did get our first our first Dada, which was more like a da 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 da. <laughs> like really just just testing out like what does this tongue do up front here um but still look whatever i'll take it it was very very heartwarming to me i got a little emotional um very very sweet and uh yeah had to share the video with ben how are you doing today bud i am doing great that was a very tender moment can i get jonah to teach some of my clarinet students how to tongue softly oh. that, was, that was some premium clarinet tongue i'm working out a few few of my students right now yeah, he doesn't have years and years of tension and bad habits to uh, <laughs> to restrict the tongue movement just yet. It's just uh, just full uh, full new new baby moves there. Um, happy fall break to you, my friend. Oh yeah, you know it. I've got a whole three days off here. We're supposed to have a week off, but you know, ban Wednesday, ban Thursday, ban Friday, ban Saturday, and then I'll be less busy after the week after that. Probably after the week after that, actually. So like three more weeks and then I'll be less busy. I think that is the phrase that would be on your tombstone. Not, not <laughs> your guys Ben Werney, woe is me or like whatever the top decks. But and after that, I'll have more free time. And after that, I'll be less busy. That is that's the phrase I've heard the most often from you in the six plus years of knowing you. It's the biggest lie I tell myself. Works every time. <laughs> I'm glad you can convince yourself. Um, we've got quite a show this week. I'm very, very excited. And even though the show notes are not, perhaps not as sparse as we might like, I do think the conversation is going to be excellent. Really excited for diving into the questions you're not asking, parentheses, to understand power, close parentheses. Um, ben, do you have any a little teaser you want to tee up before we uh, do some housekeeping? Well, not even a teaser yet. I think we're getting dangerously close to the top five questions you're not asking to be great at MTG. Click you won't here. believe number three. Exactly. Yeah. If I can, if I can peel back the curtain of Lords of Limited just a little bit, I know we like to leave this this kind of content for our patrons, but I'll just throw it out there. Um, ben shared a Google Doc with me, oh, no. and and gave an attempt at a title, and he wrote, "What is power?" So power <laughs> spelled P O and then capital W, capital O, capital E R, and I was like, "Why don't you just leave? Why don't you just leave the the title game to me, okay, bud?" But the silver lining of that was that you told me you lost faith in my titling abilities, which means at one point you had some faith in my titling abilities, which is more credit than I have ever given my titling abilities. So there you go. That's fair. I'm taking that as a win. So yeah, we've got actually quite a bit of housekeeping stuff to dive into today. So some usual and some fun new one-offs. First up, let's talk about the Patreon page. Patreon.com slash Lords of Limited is where folks can go to give back to the show if they so choose. Because we're doing a little bit of a level up episode, that means next week... 
is 50 takes. And that means new set season is right around the corner. Kind of crazy to think about, but we do have the return of really one of my favorite formats, just fondly from podcasting, fondly from Sailor of Means. We're going back to Ixalan, baby. Are you excited? Pirates, dinosaurs, and merfolk. Oh my, let's go. Yeah, yeah. Can't can't wait for that. Can't wait for the return of this is caverns, lost caverns. Lost Caverns of Ixalan. Gonna be a little harder to get those episode pun titles going. Watsy really challenging you with this one. Yeah, LCI. Yeah, we had a really easy run with Bro, One, Mom, Whoa, and now LCI. It's okay. I think I can handle it. I'm gonna crack some knuckles and uh and get to brainstorming a little bit. But new set season is a great time to get in on the Patreon because all of our patrons get access to the Lords of Limited Discord. It's hopping, it's popping at 24-7 limited tech support, a great place. For preview season, cards get previewed, throw it out. Hey, how do we think this is going to play? Whatever. Then once the full spoiler drops, you have people ranking their top commons. You can see people's comparison of 17 lands tier lists. You can even get in on some practice drafts once those go live on the Heroku app. So a lot of really fun stuff to get in with a a community of like-minded, limited DGENs. And I say that with all of the love to everybody there as, as perhaps captain of the DGENs. And of course, we want to shout out our new patrons the first week that they join. So this week, we are welcoming Sheesh. Kyle, Ben, Roquin, Alex, Josh, Jordan, Brentley, and Mike. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We really appreciate your support. Yeah, cannot say thank you enough. Show is also brought to you by Cool Stuff Inc., coolstuffinc.com, where they've got cool stuff in stock. They've got woe in stock. I'm sure they have Doctor Who universes beyond in stock. I've seen a lot of that on my timeline. And honestly, those things, I think, would have rubbed me the wrong way. But I've just had people from my past. I don't know if this has happened to you. I've had people from my past reach out and like, oh, you're into magic, right? I saw they're doing this Doctor Who thing or I saw they're doing this like it's clearly like bringing people into the game and making them aware of it. So hey, if that's your jam, magic, I saw, I saw they're doing this IHOP thing. That's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, that's happened to me as well. <laughs> no shade to any of the folks participating in that crossover. But anytime those ads come up on my Twitter feed, I feel like I'm being pranked. Like I see the word <laughs> pan coins and i'm like oh this is real this is just actually real sorry to interrupt ben please <laughs> no proceed. A premium ad read here for cool stuff <laughs> but seriously they've got it all in stock they've got whoa they've got things beyond magic speaking of universes beyond they've got board games they've got pokemon they've got whatever you're interested in is in stock at coolstuffinc.com and we would really appreciate using code lol all caps when you go there to make your purchases to get 5% off your order and more importantly, let them know that we sent you there. Or maybe more importantly for you, 5% off. More importantly for us, <laughs> that you let them know that we sent you over there. Yeah, dep- yeah it depends whose perspective you're looking at this from. Yes. Um, we wanted to give uh, a shout to a really great charity event that's happening this week. This is Taking the Initiative for Trans Lifeline is happening October 16th to 20th. So Monday through Friday of this week. Um, this charity event will be going live. So to give folks a little bit of uh, insight, Trans Lifeline is a grassroots hotline and a microgrants 501c3 nonprofit organization that offers direct emotional and financial support to trans people in crisis for the trans community by the trans community. This uh, charity event is being organized by Brian Koval, Phil Gallagher, and Alan, aka Mental Misplay. Uh, like I said, running this week, Monday through Friday, featuring raffle giveaways for donations with prizes that include secret layers, command deck boxes, 
collector boxes, and $100 gift cards to Cool Stuff Inc. and more. Uh, you'll see other content creators like Scrybabies and Caleb DMTG shouting out this fundraiser throughout the week as well. All donations are going to be processed through Tiltify, which we will have a link for where you download the show. It'll be in our Discord. We'll post it up on Twitter as, as well. So you'll be able to find that pretty easily. I think this is a great cause, a great organization, and happy to be able to uh, to shout it out this week. Absolutely. Then something else happened last week, I think. There was uh, there was some sort of event on Tuesday night. Can you, can you refresh my memory? I mean, folks might not have caught it because it happened and was over so quickly because <laughs> the lack of competition just just wasn't really a thing, you know? There wasn't wow. that uh, there wasn't that depth to the games. <laughs> Unbelievable. I was going to come in slightly hot. You just came in and savaged it. So we're talking of course about the Lords versus Resources showdown number 15 and Team Lords and Cord were victorious without question. Um, so much so that my first match against LSV broke his arena <laughs> to where he could not re-challenge anyone. So we thought we were going to have to scrap it, reschedule, whatever. But no, actually, even if Luis had won both of his games against you and Alex, wouldn't have mattered. Yeah, just wasn't close to close and feels pretty good. And we're talking a lot of trash for still being down 7-8. <laughs> In yeah, the over, in the overall we've, we've had quite a bit of catch up to do. We were once down seven to three. It was a more than 50% deficit of matches. So happy to have it be pretty competitive here, eight to seven now. Only one more to tie it up, and we are still on a bit of a heater. So looking forward to see what we can do in Lost Caverns. We also have to shout out possibly the best YouTube comment of all time that was posted on your YouTube channel. What was it? So yeah, our our YouTube channel, but on my video that I, I posted, and I, I did 3-0 the draft. I opened very well, but also was the only blue drafter at the table and the one of the two, I think, white drafters at the table. So had a pretty nice looking deck, even for like very nice for a team draft. I would have been happy with that deck even in just a regular league draft as well. Um, and someone wrote, feels kind of dirty watching a pro just dumpster some randos. Ooh. And uh, <laughs> yeah, that just that just wins the internet for me, I got to say. How does it um, feel to be an MTG pro? It feels good. Yeah, I, I sent that to uh, my chat with G-Guards and 2-Duck Cubed. And Garrett was like, well, maybe it's actually a nice comment. And they're referring to you because you're qualified for the pro tour i was like yeah i know i actually get the joke <laughs> i know what the joke is um so yeah so that was pretty sweet that run is up on our uh, youtube channel if you want to check it out and then i assume most of the folks bk was not able to stream but everybody else should be able to check out their video in their vods on twitch if you want to get uh get five of the six perspectives all right ben you got any sort of teaser here any any again peel back the curtain to give us some insights into this idea for the episode that was burbling at the surface for you yeah I've just been thinking for a while about power level and how to understand it outside of the data, I think, because a lot of people go to the data to see what's good at this point. But I think there's a lot more to the story than data and a lot more ways that people can try to figure it out for themselves. And it, it started with you wanting to leave gruff triplets and fawns being troll on the mm. sideline. And then like, a couple, <laughs> well, I'm the problem. I see. I need, I have some things to learn as well. <laughs> you do. And then, and then I think like just several other things that happened around that time in our discord where I was engaging with some what's the picks in, in our draft log section that got me thinking about how I think about power. And I do feel like one of the things I do best as a magic player is have very clear tiers of power level in my head. And like, I'm always adjusting 
those scales up and down on cards all the way across the board in the format throughout the life of the format. I think that's one of my best strengths as a magic player. And just thinking about how I do that and why I do that to try to teach people how to do that for themselves. Yeah, two things. One, if you're not watching on YouTube, if you're just listening, you're missing <laughs> you're missing some ex- excellent visual representations of the tiers that Ben is talking about and how those are moving with some very nice wavy hands. But two, I loved this idea, but it, I was really trying to figure out one how I could perhaps hook in and and add my own perspective to it. But but two, also trying to figure out how we could make it a bit of a new, obviously these level ups will often be returning to certain things. You know, we're 344 episodes deep. We may be returning to some content over the years, but I wanted to figure out how we were going to, you know, perhaps package this a little differently. And something that I really try to instill when I'm doing coaching sessions is this idea of asking questions, like constantly having this stream during the draft, during deck building, during gameplay of just asking myself as many questions. And the more of those questions you ask, the more you're going to have answers ready. And then you're going to be able to hone in on certain things in this whole limited process a little bit better. And it's something that I don't think many players are doing. So we're going to sort of combine those two thoughts together for today's episode. So let's take a quick ad break and then we'll be in to that main topic. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Do you ever feel like your brain is getting in its own way? Like you know what you should do, what's good for you, but you just can't do it? Yep, I am having a really hard time getting myself back on track to exercise. So easy to come up with all the reasons I can't do it or convince myself that chasing around a nine-month-old is some form of cardio, be stuck in a mental block, worrying about how hard it will be and how far away I am from my personal goals to not just get back to day one. I've been there. I was pretty good about exercising this summer. And as soon as the school year hit, that was out the window. And I'm telling myself, you're too busy. It'll be fine. You'll do it again when you have more free time. It's just easy to come up with excuses. And that's where better help comes in. Therapy can be a great opportunity to help you figure out what's holding you back. So you can work for yourself instead of against yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Make your brain your friend with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Lords today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Lords. And now, back to the show. All right, so we've got this sort of broken down into a few different sections and sort of sections in the perhaps progress of a format, right? Sort of spoiler season into playing with the cards and then the progression of a, of a draft to deck building to gameplay. So we start with card evaluation. Yeah. Yeah. I think you have to come close to being able to do this. You have to have good card evaluation skills and good card evaluation fundamentals And you have to baseline know whether a card is a quality Magic the Gathering card or not. Right. So I think that question is, how do I expect this card to perform on its own merits, right? Whatever, in a vacuum, its intrinsic power level. And that is also going to be sometimes even separate from prior to playing with the set or or prior to the full spoiler dropping. It might even be separate from the environment, but that's also a pretty big piece of the puzzle there too. But just sort of looking at a magic card in a vacuum, what is that card's power level? Right. Well, I think it's both. If you really want to yeah. be at your max success, right, you should, before the format comes out, 
try to grade all the cards and like have an idea of where you expect them to be. And then as soon as you start playing with the cards, those are going to fluctuate because then you do get to see the environment, right? And a two mana two, two might be way better in some environments than other environments, right? So Mm -hmm. I think both of those things need to happen for sure. Right. So what are the card evaluation tools that you use? I mean, first and foremost, quadrant theory. I think that is the golden standard from limited resources. That was my first episode of LR that I ever listened to and it blew my mind. So if you've not ever heard that, you need to go back and you need to listen to quadrant theory. But it talks about putting cards in four quadrants when the game is developing, when you're ahead as a player, when you're behind on board as a player, and when you're at parity on the board, meaning both people have kind of an an equal stake in the board presence and nobody really has good uh, attacks. Just evaluating cards through those four quadrants, and then the more quadrants a card scores well in, the better it is in general. And you know, some cards might be super good when you're ahead, some cards might be super good when you're behind, and just how to weight all of those different categories to try to arrive at kind of a a baseline evaluation for a card. And even though it is quadrant theory, not all quadrants are weighted equally, right? Like more important for card, like less important, I think, for cards to perform well when you're ahead, because many cards perform well when you're ahead. I'd say that's probably the least important quadrant. Um, But just to recognize that like they're not all the same. There are certainly going to be cards that are great in developing, but then not so great when you're at parity, which of those is going to be more important for you, you know? Yes, I agree, especially what you said about ahead being the least important. But I do think that's changed for me a little bit as I've gotten better at playing aggro, right? Says the man who called the card Grand Ball Celebrant. Listen, tell how many times you've cast that. <laughs> I have cast that card quite a bit. Thank you. I'm just bad <laughs> at card names. Uh, but I think that category matters a little bit more when you're planning to be ahead, right? Some decks do plan to be ahead and then you get yes. to weight that category a little bit more. Um, one of, I think, the best things that Ryan Sachs has left us with on the show is sort of like drafting with optimism, deck building with optimism. And that has really shifted my perspective of aggro deck since then. So that's quadrant theory in a nutshell. And the next card evaluation tool we come to is one that you and I did. That's an older episode from a while ago, which is the VAST method. Yeah. So the VAST method stands for vanilla test, analogous comparisons, set specific and testing in game. And, you know, we haven't really returned to this uh, since that episode. I talk about this um, when I talk about card evaluation and coaching sessions quite a bit because I think it's an important um, framework for baselines. So I'm going to shout out those first two points of vanilla test and analogous comparisons because that just really like lets you, once you understand the vanilla test, which just sort of is a framework for what do I expect to get for a certain mana value. And I think it started with creatures, but what's also important to note is that spells have vanilla tests as well. So thinking about, you know, you often expect to get twice the power plus toughness of what you're paying. So a two mana, two, two, or three, one, or one, three, a three mana, three, three, or four, two, or two, four, whatever. And as you move up, there's sort of also an inflection point there. Like, there's diminishing returns, right? Like a five mana five five and a six mana six six start to not matter unless they've got some extra stuff. But what is the vanilla test for those creatures? Let's you know, like, oh, I'm getting more for the rate. That's when we, when we talk about like what's the rate you're getting for your cards. Am I getting more for that? Am I getting less than I expect the rest of the text of the card to make up for that? And then the thing about spells having a baseline, like we expect to pay three mana to draw two. We expect to pay three mana for our opponent to discard two. We expect to pay 
one mana to deal two, two to three mana to deal three. We expect black to maybe get like one mana minus two minus two, five mana kill anything, whatever, four mana kill anything. What those baselines are will then let you know like, Oh, remember, I'm trying to think back to March of the Machine. I don't remember what it was called, but one of the the green invasions, Invasion of Marasa, I think, it's the five mana. It was basically Hunt the Week. It was a five mana battle, four and a green, put a plus and plus one counter on one of your creatures that fights something. So it was one mana more, and that ended up just being so egregiously expensive as like Hunt the Week is already situational, but that card on its own was just like, wow, this is so much more, plus all the other things we're talking about of like Quadrant Theory and maybe that card not super performing well in the context of the set, etc. But so I think the vast method, really, the, the V and the A are what I want to focus on there. Well, I think of all the things we're going to go through in this episode, there's kind of stair steps of advancedness. Mm-hmm. And this like Quadrant Theory, Fast Method, I think the five R's that we're going to get into in a second, like is level one. If you can't do these things, it's going to be hard for you to take them to some of the other things we're going to talk about. Like kind of like in math, you have to be able to do addition and subtraction well before you can do and multiplication before you can do long division. And then you have to be able to do long division before you can start to do pre-algebra or whatever. You know, if you have holes in your card evaluation skills, that's where I think a lot of people get themselves into trouble sometimes from the advice we give on the podcast, because I think Mm. we, we operate from an assumption that our audience can evaluate things like close to as well as we do, right? Like our our target audience for our podcast is us. Maybe us from four or five years ago, but still us. Yes. And I think, so you kind of need to, as you're listening to this episode also, dear listener, like try to peg yourself somewhere on the scale. And if you think you have holes in your card evaluation skills, that's the best place you can go to right now to get better at magic, in my opinion. Do you have any, like, can we go a step further here? Can we go off show notes and say, like, how do people improve? Like, let's say someone is just like time and time again, like, man, I am way off. Like the top commons that I'm picking before the set comes out are nowhere near like, you know, how does someone hone in on I'm overvaluing X, I'm undervaluing Y, like what, again, what are the questions that they can be asking themselves? I mean, you have to know your tendencies, right? I still after five years of podcasting with you am overvaluing the fog that is potentially a one sided (laughs) rat, right? Yes. Uh, So knowing your tendencies, but I think just doing it over and over again, right? The way I feel like I got comfortable was content. I I mean, a large set review Every time they would say a card and I would try to think of the grade I would give it and then I would give it my grade mentally and then they would say their grade and then I would compare and think like, was I right? Great. Check. Point for me. If I was wrong, I think where's the difference and why? Like a lot of it boils down to critical thinking, but I think critical thinking combined with repetition also and then just videos like watching YouTube videos or watching VODs of streams. When people are drafting, you look at the pack, you think, what's my pick? pause it and then you unpause see what the streamer's pick is if there's a difference ask yourself why and a lot of times the streamer you know will explain it or try to find streamers that do explain it when you're doing that kind of stuff Mm. and then you just shouted this out the five r's and i'd say maybe the sixth one is rest in peace because we don't really refer to this (laughs) very much we really we really tried but it was tough to i get this to stick but i do think it's a really good framework to break away from the grading scale and really try and think about cards in categories rather than because i think we get into the muck in the mire of like i think this is a b not a b plus it's like sure but what we're both saying is that this is a reason to draft this color or color pair you know so what are the five r's the five r's are raw power cards that are just 
busted, bomb rares, that sort of thing. Reasons, which are cards that are, this kind of takes the letter grades and like gets rid of B minus B, B plus, as you said. So like raw powers are kind of the A's. Reasons are anything in the B's. Rewards are C pluses almost exclusively. And then C's are your role players. Those are the cards that you expect to be playing with a lot, but that aren't, you know, super great. And then replacement level is basically anything below C. Yeah, and I think just to dive into it a little bit more, trying to, again, divorce Break it away from, from the letter grades. Yeah, the letter yes. grades is that, yeah, reasons are like, is what it says. It's a reason to be in that color, color pair. Rewards are, I think this is a great way to think about, you know, when they're, they're cards that you see, whatever, fourth, fifth, sixth, but then are such a departure from the cards you've already drafted. It's like, okay, is that a reason for me to jump into another archetype potentially? Or is that a card that once I'm in that archetype, I'm really happy that it gets to me because I feel rewarded for carving that out. And then role players sort of go a step lower where it's like, there are a few spots in the format where this card really excels. Like this is a real, like you want to make sure you have this in a deck. So something like Barrow Naughty, I would say is a role player, like going to be really good in some spots. So it's a great way to sort of differentiate between C's and C minuses. Cause like, that's, there's just so much more to the story than just, oh, this card's a C minus. It's like, yeah, but sometimes in some decks, it's going to be really good. What are those decks? And then replacement level is like, if you ever end a draft and you're like, man, I'm never going to miss that scream puff. That's replacement level. Doesn't mean that it's bad. Doesn't mean that it can't perform, can't you know excel in your deck, but it's not an important piece and not, certainly not a piece that you can't find an interchangeable something else at the end of the draft if you don't find it, you know? Yes, this is the, I think the best piece of content we've come up with that hasn't caught on in the community. <laughs> I, I do. I think the five R's are incredible as far as like how to frame things for where cards belong in decks and how highly to pick them and other things for exactly the reasons you said, right? Because it can divorce from the letter grade system. Like the letter grade is again, excellent for entry level into card evaluation. And then the five R's go, I think a step beyond that and really let you have a better conversation when you're talking about card evaluations. Mm-hmm. I do think that one of the, the most important things to be distinct with in the grading scale is the difference between B minus and C plus. And I feel like once you're getting away from the letter grade of it all, there it is. That's for you, Ben, um, is <laughs> inside jokes. You, once you start to have reasons and rewards as just like, oh yeah, that's a reason that feels like a pull into something versus that's a payoff. That's a reward for having drafted that. It's a much, I think for at least how my brain works, a much cleaner delineation between those two. Yes, for sure. So if we get into some individual card examples here from your PT sealed runs, just talking about cards like Fawn's Bane Troll or Gruff Triplets that are some of the best cards in the set. Like when you were looking at your sealed pool, you thought, I don't have enough playables in green. Mm -hmm. And I saw those cards like Fawn's Bane Troll, Gruff Triplets, Goose Mother and thought, I have to play these cards no Uh matter what. Right. Like that's a very different idea of looking at that sealed pool. Right. So. I think in defense of my, and I'll, I'll just call it because of how, how it played out, I'll call it incorrect <laughs> perspective, was I was thinking of consistency being so paramount for my sealed pool that I was worried that because, you know, that's sort of a, a, a tipping of the scales of like, I, it's not that I didn't recognize that those cards were powerful and, and it truly like it was such a unique situation where I really had no playable green cards. Like you talk about, okay, you have to play these cards. We ended up playing two 
green cards other than those <laughs> in my quote unquote base black green deck, right? So it really was super duper shallow. But my feeling, I was just giving much more weight to consistency. And you were saying there's too much power here to leave on the sidelines. Well, and some of that is the difference between draft and sealed also, right? Like in draft, would never recommend what I recommended to you for sealed because sealed, you can get away with a little bit more, enough of a little bit more of an inconsistent looking deck for raw power. I think that matters so much more in sealed than it does in draft because you don't get to choose the other cards that go around your cards, right? And some sealed pools are going to be busted and you're going to have all of those things. You're going to have power and you're going to have the cards that complement those cards really well. Your pool, you were either getting cards that complemented each other or power. And I think in sealed, power is more important than the cards complementing each other. Mm -hmm. And do you think that's true for sealed across the board, or that's something that you want to reevaluate set to set as well? Probably set to set, for sure. But then just another example here, a card that comes to mind, Spellbook Vendor. Like, a, a broken card, right? Like, significantly powerful. I think an A on the, on the grading scale would certainly fall into the raw power category. How good do you think that card is? I mean, I think like a lot of these, I mean, it is a bomb, right? Because it does, like, it will take over the game if unanswered. Yes? Like, you see that come down on turn two and you're like, I have to answer this because I know what it's capable of doing. Next turn, my opponent plays a two drop. They get extra value. They're going to continue to get extra value from scries because in theory, it's enabling attacks. So the longer that card sits on the battlefield, not only is it itself something I need to answer, but the, it perpetually creates more and more threats that I need to answer, right? Because everything is getting that additional roll token onto it. So I would describe it as a bomb. But it's interesting to think about it because, especially as these two drops are, interesting to think about it as like, is it as good on turn two as it is on turn 10? Not even close, right? Like it's right. significantly better. Some of its power level comes from, yes, some percentage of the time, I'm going to be able to play this on turn two and run away with the game. Like 40% of its power, I don't know, 50% of its power is when you curve out with this card. And it's also powerful and you want this from your two drops in that it's still very relevant on turn 10, but significantly less powerful than it is on turn two. And it might almost be most powerful on turn three, like when you've played another two drop, right? That's probably its most powerful scenario is you've played a two drop and then turn three, you play Spellbook Vendor, get an immediate activation, and then you've already got the benefit of it. So your opponent's behind, even if they can answer Spellbook Vendor. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And so then, you know, just to think about power level in a vacuum, what if you're splashing that Spellbook Vendor? How much worse is it? Is it good enough to splash? No, like that's a card where I would not, you know, even if I've got a, like good enough sources for it, right? Let's say I've got an Evolving Wilds, a Prophetic Prism, and a Plains. I don't think that's good enough on its own to splash just because I, I don't think it makes up for, you know, we talk about the, the cost benefit of splashing, like the reason it's a cost is that sometimes you're going to draw Spellbook Vendor without your white source. That's a mulligan. Sometimes you're going to draw your white source when you needed a source of your base two colors. That's a mulligan. And so the times when you assemble splash plus splash color, it has to make up for those other losses. And I just don't think Vendor does, especially because of that diminishing returns-ish we're talking about, where like the more turns it takes for you to assemble that, the less powerful Vendor is. 
Right. So then another card here, Fawn's Bane Troll, would you splash that? Yes, always. Right. And how like how do you how do you know? Because I think people get confused on that sometimes. I- immediate impact perhaps is a good way to frame it. Like spellbook vendor is like, I want I need turns, I need time to take over. And so if I'm expecting, well, on average I'm not gonna get it, but until like turn seven, well then how many more turns do I want this two drop to be around for to like take advantage of it? Whereas Fawn's Bane Troll is almost better on the splash. Because like I don't actually want to play that on turn four. I really want to play it on when I have five or more mana so that I can have it hit the battlefield and be able to f- kill something immediately. So then I'm like, okay, I get my two for one up front with the potential for even more if I have more roll tokens to put on it. So maybe maybe just time is a way to think about it. Right. And then I'm going to throw another question at you here that just popped into my head that's not on our show notes. Spellbook Vendor versus Torch the Tower, which is a better card. Uh, that's. Uh, I feel like that question is going to get answered a little later. I think Spellbook Vendor is a better card if we have to s- slap it on there. Right. I, I'm wondering talking, if you're. If we're talking I'm about more power, me up for the old. It doesn't matter. Answer. No, I'm, I'm not teeing you up for the. It doesn't matter. I think Spellbook Vendor is a more powerful magic card than Torch the Tower. Right. Threat. Uh-huh. Premium threats better than premium answers. And Spellbook Vendor is a premium threat. I think as a fundamental way to look at it, would you splash towards the tower? <laughs> I generally would not. I mean, this is the the classic answer to many magic questions is it depends. Um, I think as a, as a general rule, I'm hoping not to splash towards the tower. But you can because like towards the tower, even on turn five or six, as assuming you can bargain it, I think that's the difference is that you have to be able to bargain it But assuming you can, one mana deal three is still going to be pretty impactful on turn five or six because you can double spell with it. Right. But it's interesting, right? Magic's like power in magic is so interesting. That's the kind of conversations I want to have. Like Spellbook Mm -hmm. Vendor is a more powerful card in a vacuum. What we're talking about here with card evaluation skills, like Spellbook Vendor gets an A, A minus. Torch the Tower probably gets a B. You're never splashing Spellbook Vendor. You might splash Torch the Tower sometimes, Mm -hmm. depending on what you need. You're always splashing Fawn's Bane Troll. If Mm -hmm. you have the ways to do it, you know, like so even among all three of those cards are very good, like certain scenarios and when and where and why. And you really do have to apply critical thinking to it. Right. That's I think and I think the way to tie it back in and we haven't quite gotten to in the draft yet because this episode, I guess, is going to be three hours long. But we haven't (laughs) is that the way I want to think about that in draft pack one, pick one. I take Fawn's Bane Troll and I'm like this unless I end up in like blue, white with no fixing like. This card's just making my deck, no matter what. And Spellbook Vendor and Torch the Tower do not have that same lens that I look at them through. Right, which is, I think, the ultimate goal, if you take nothing away from this episode other than this, like questions to ask yourselves to get yourselves to mental card tiers, right? Fawn's Bane Troll is in a tier above Spellbook Vendor and Torch the Tower because like, you want to do everything in your power to make sure that it ends up in your deck, whereas those other two cards... Very good. And I think Spellbook Vendor, even in a tier above Torch the Tower, but all all of them are incentivizing you to end up in their colors, but you're much more willing, I think, to get pushed off of Spellbook Vendor or Torch Torch. the Tower in the draft than you are Fawn's Main Troll. But the idea that you need to use those tools, you need to use Quadrant Theory, you need to use the Vast Method, you need to use those five R's to help yourself get to a mental tier list of cards in the context of the format with how powerful you expect them to be what the splashability of the cards are, all those sorts of things so that you can try to, I think, build and draft good decks. But if, if you're wrong on your card evaluation fundamentals in the format, 
you're just going to lose a lot. Like that's the barrier to entry. Like you need to know how the cards stack up against each other. Those those good hand gestures again for YouTube. So good. You got, you got to check out the YouTube. <laughs> I, got, I got to say, I think that's so important because if you're just off there, it's just going to have, as you talked about last week, that ripple effect is just going to go through. Like then you're maybe not going to be even reading correct signals. So you're just going to end up not only with a less powerful deck because your card evaluations are off and you're picking suboptimal cards, but then you're probably not getting into the right decks often enough. And then your power level is just going to be so out of whack that when you get to the games, you just can't compete. And one of the other things I want to shout out personally that's been a level up for me lately in card evals is I, I have really started to bump cards up that do something immediately, like that mm-hmm. immediately have an impact when they enter the battlefield. And I've kind of always known that that's good, but like just to really value it and prioritize it, make sure I get something out of my cards up front, whether it's a rectangle when they enter the battlefield or an effect when they enter the battlefield or, you know, the adventures, but just the cards do something that my opponents can't cleanly answer my card and me to have gotten no advantage out of it. Yeah, I think you really put that into perspective talking about those three black three drops, like Sweet Tooth Witch, Voracious Vermin, and Conceited Witch. And like Sweet Tooth Witch just clearly is the best of the bunch because what you get up front, you just get the, that power and toughness 3-2 plus that extra rectangle for 3 mana. Conceited Witch makes you work for it for 4 mana. And Voracious Vermin, you get the 3-2 of power and toughness up front, but you don't get an extra thing, however you want to think about it. Right. All right, next question to ask yourself after you have good, I think, fundamental cardival skills is what is the ceiling of this card? And this is where synergy starts to come in. Yeah, and I think, again, drafting with optimism perhaps also comes in. But as soon as, and we'll maybe take a look at uh, uh, some picks or a pick a little later, but as soon as you're taking even your first card, I was watching Mystical Dispute starting to do a little YouTube action. Fun to watch Carl and Garrett um, do a draft. Their pack one pick one was Monstrous Rage. If you're taking Monstrous Rage, pack one pick one, you're already thinking of, because like I feel like when we say synergy, and man, I'm doing the same thing as you. I'm like starting 12 different thoughts at once because this is (laughs) i have so much to say but i feel like the word synergy you think about a plus b you're like ah i am a fairies deck and so i have cards that are fairies and cards that care about fairies and that is the synergy but i think (laughs) what your your voice there (laughs) ah yes yes. indeed (laughs) yeah that's sort of the the i don't know rudimentary level up but I think synergy can be so much more. It can just be like, what's the ceiling of the card? When I take Monstrous Rage, what's the best deck I want to put that card in? Well, it wants to be red, obviously, but it it wants to be aggressive. So that means it needs to be threat dense because combat tricks, especially combat tricks that give trample and plus three plus one are going to be best when I'm attacking. And so I need to be aggressive. I need to be a red deck. I need to be threat dense. So I, because like when you have, it's one of the biggest mistakes I see people doing with aggressive decks is you've got, you just don't have enough actual threats because you need your hand most often to give you creatures so that you can use what everything in your deck is going to need to be good as creatures. You use removal that like your creatures are leveraging your removal because you kill something, push damage, your combat tricks, push damage, your whatever other creature augmentations, equipment and auras. It's all pushing damage. So monstrous rage. I'm already thinking about what am I going to do? And what, what colors is that going to pair best with is red blue going to be threat dense? Probably not. Red blue is going to be doing a little bit more, maybe tempo stuff. Maybe it doesn't need as many threats. Red white for sure. Red black for sure. 
red green maybe, but do I really want to end up in red green? Probably not. So I'm already thinking when I pack one, pick one monstrous rage, I'm already going to start giving more weight to white and black cards as the draft progresses. You know, like that's so much happening in just one pick. I've got so many questions for you. I know, this is I know, such I a know. good example. So monstrous rage, this isn't even in our show notes. This, this episode could be three hours. <laughs> maybe there'll be a part two some other time. We'll see. But so Monstrous Rage, what grade would you give it? How powerful is it intrinsically? A B. Ooh. A B, a B, a B minus. And see, this is such an interesting thing about <laughs> Magic too, because I give I would give it a lower grade. So we've got different, mm-hmm. different power level evaluations of that card. Yes. And then whichever one of us is right about it or like way acts on that power level is going to win a little bit more, right? Yes, I agree. But can I ask you, because I'm already sort of like on the intrinsic power level, I'm... I'm really thinking of it more in the framework of synergy, because when I think of a card like Monstrous Rage versus a card like Torch the Tower, Torch the Tower is just like always going to do the thing. And so it's more intrinsically powerful than Monstrous Rage. Monstrous Rage has a higher ceiling than Torch the Tower, I would say, because it it can do something really powerful. And I do think part of my evaluation of a card, especially early in a draft, is going to be giving stuff. Would I actually take Monstrous Rage over Torch the Tower? Probably not, pack one, pick one. But that's partially because it's like, how much work do I want to do? I like to take the card that has, it's still very good, but has a higher floor. It's going to go in a wider variety of decks, whereas Monstrous Rage going to go in many fewer decks. I'm never splashing Monstrous Rage, right? But I might splash Torch. But it's going to have a higher ceiling potentially. And I I feel like I can maximize that earlier in the draft, which makes it appealing. I agree. Okay, so next question. I see <laughs> where you're going so with all of this. Right now. I am so excited right now. What R do you give it? Where do you put Monstrous Rage on the R's? It's a reason. See, that's where for, we're different. That's why yeah, the that's R's are so good. Like, yes. I, think, I think Monstrous Rage is a reward for doing an uh-huh. aggressive deck because of the next thing I'm going to post to you. All the things you're, tr- you're saying are true. When you have Monstrous Rage, you want creatures, you want to be threat dense, like ceiling on it is higher than Torch the Tower. I agree with all of those things, but like I'm totally fine to abandon it too. Like next pick, if somebody yes. passes me, whatever. So it's tough to early draft towards it because it it asks things of you, right? Yes. It wants you to draft other certain styles of cards. So I guess here's what I'm trying to illustrate is that if you do successfully draft towards it, it's going to be great. But I think weighting it as such mm-hmm. narrows your options in the draft. So it's going yes. to, if you do the thing, heavily reward you for doing the thing like if you manage to draft a deck where it's great but you're going to have to make significant concessions in the draft if you want to do that early on and i don't think it's necessarily worth making those concessions i don't think it is powerful enough that i am willing to give up the flexibility in draft that you need to give up to maximize the chances that you're going to end up in that type of deck i think that's totally fair i think i agree with you but all of those other things you're saying are true and so if the draft happens to go in a way where you can maximize that card it's going to be great but you're also i think personally willing to be pushed off it pretty quickly personally yeah well i, th- I think i am i think you are what's interesting is i don't i feel like two duck cubed is not. I feel like that's such a Carl <laughs> card and he's so inclined and, and probably happy to even, maybe he wouldn't think so narrowly about, ah, it's probably only good in red, white or red, black. I think he's probably like, yeah, whatever. I'll figure it out. Monster's Rage rules, you know? Like, I feel like those those one mana tricks, especially as powerful as Rage, um, he really maximizes well. But I, yeah, I, I think you're right. It's probably for me, I am going to get pushed off of it too often for it to be really, this is why I said like, 
I'm still going to take Torch the Tower over it early. Um, so I'm probably not act in my head. I'm my, my, there's probably some cognitive dissonance happening here with like how much I think the card is good versus how highly I'm willing to take it. Yeah. Well, or just how much you're willing to be pushed off it because you see, like you see the whole picture, you do see Mm -hmm. the ceiling of the card. So another thing to think about with synergy, just a baseline understanding synergy is what does this card want? Like, I think that is the most clear way to frame synergy, right? Baronati is synergistic. It wants other fairies. Exactly what you said. Ah, Sherlock Holmes was my magnifying glass. <laughs> I see this card wants other fairies. Or Sheree, for example, of Numbing Depths. The, the two mm. blue-white 2-3 that when it taps, ETBs tap something. And whenever you tap an untapped creature your opponent controls, you draw a card. That wants you to have other tap cards around it, right? So then you go into the format and you're like, great, I understand synergy. I'm going to take this Sheree of Numbing Depths. I'm going to draft a bunch of tap cards. Like, this didn't work. I don't understand why. What do you say to that person? I say, I think that the days of, and we've sort of coined this as A plus B strategy, as like column A is your um, payoffs for something, and column B is your enablers for that something. So I have things that tap, and I have things that care about tapping. I have things that are fairies and things that care about fairies. I think that the days of those kinds of decks being good is gone. I don't think A plus B, especially flimsy ones like that, are good because you really like, here's my answer to that person. You want to shift your card evaluations towards weighting that intrinsic power level more. Like it's not to say that the synergy doesn't matter, but you don't then want to, like what happens when you don't draw charade? Are your cards all terrible? What happens when you don't have Barrow Naughty. Like, or is Barrow Naughty terrible in your deck if you don't draw another fairy? Like, do you have other, you know, do you have roll tokens to suit it up or whatever? Like, do you have ways to take advantage of that Barrow Naughty or are you more defensive? And so a two mana one, three flying body is going to serve a role in your deck. You want your deck to be greater than the sum of its parts, but you also want your cards to do their thing on their own. Right. So the thing that it would take for like blue white tap is bad, right? It is a trap Correct. in in Wilds of Eldraine, but it wouldn't have to be that way. There's a world where blue yes. and white had better commons and the cards that tapped things were better like, cards intrinsically. Like if there were, for example, in frost links, like yes, what if there was just <laughs> if there's exactly. a three mana two two ETV tap and then keep it tapped. What if the tapper in white was two mana to activate one mana to activate? The deck would would be way better, would be way better. And then it wouldn't be a trap and we would recommend drafting it. So that's one of the things you have to figure out going into a format. And I think one of our jobs to help you with certainly as content creators, like we can give you quick and dirty eh, blue white tap didn't really get there. But but blue white, I think, as a color pair does yes. get there just yes. as a control deck, ignoring that seeded synergy. So synergy is tricky in that like Wizards of the Coast tries to seed these 10 archetypes and some of them do fail, I think, most formats. And <laughs> yeah. knowing which ones, you know, are are maybe red herrings to avoid as far as signpost on commons and which ones to lean into, like red white celebrate, absolutely. Lean into that. Yeah. You you cannot go wrong drafting a red white celebrate deck. But even red white celebrate is a like, yes, but it's almost a byproduct of the what the deck is wanting to do. Because like, yeah, red cap thief like looks like, oh, this is a celebrate card. This is a three mana, two, three, brings along a treasure. And yeah, you can, but that would go in in terms of the R's. I would call that replacement level for a red-white deck. That's not 
yes, it can do the thing, but I'm not going, again, going out of my way to find things that make two permanents. It's just going to happen because you're leaning cheap. And so you're going to be able to double spell or hopeful vigil is already white's best common. And that makes two rectangles. And so that's going to trigger celebrate, et cetera. Right. That's why red white's excellent because its cards are excellent. Like if you go yes. under the, if you go under the card evaluation system, like it has lots of cards that excel in quadrant theory. It has lots of cards that are reasons and rewards in the five R's. It has lots of cards that pass the vanilla test with flying colors, which is why it's one of the best decks because it has excellent cards that also then have this layer of synergy along with them. Right. But the the other point I want to make about synergistic cards, so I think cut in, this is another card that we'd had discussions with that got this floating around in my brain. Cut in is wildly differs in power level depending on the deck it's put in, right? Correct. And I think also worth talking about the the splash versus not of it because it's a single red pip and, and it's removal and it's it's an expensive removal spell. And so you think like, oh, this is like red's way to deal with, you know, anything, but not really, right? Because it's four mana for four damage. Right. So I think if you put that in a focused aggressive deck where you're curving out one, two, three, or two, three, cut in, that's where you're maximizing the card. Yes. But if you're putting it in a blue-red spells deck that's fairly creature light, like, it's pretty bad. Like, it it could be anywhere in power level from, like, B-plus to D, like, depending on the deck you put it in. Correct. Well, and then you also want to think about, it goes beyond that, because what are the cards that are going to then wear this young hero roll token, right? Are are they going to have attacks on turn four? Are they going to have attacks? Like, are they just going to trade off? Are they sort of like the uh, non-evasive two mana two ones that are then just going to trade with a two two even though they get buffed, you know? Like, it's important to think about that too. Well, and requires a very certain deck build, I think, to similar yes. to the Monstrous Rage example. So these cards that are high synergy, I would put both of those cards there. Monstrous Rage, cut in. Like, high synergy, very high ceiling, fairly low floor if you put them in the wrong deck like they're pretty pretty bad cards if they're in the wrong deck i totally agree i want to talk about something else that i think about in terms of synergy and maybe this also talks about deck building i think stockpiling celebrant is a great example of this thinking about your cards on curve Something I don't see people do. I see decks where stockpiling celebrant is in there. It's you know a high performing card. We've talked it up a bunch. Whatever people like, I've seen it perform well, and they look at their deck and they go, "Yeah, I've got like I can pick up a cursed courtier curse roll token on it. I've got this other three drop I can pick up and get value from, or I've got this. Oh, maybe I could pick up my Fawn's Bane troll and redeploy it. That'd be cool." You want to play stockpiling celebrant on turn three. What what are your things you can do with it? On turn three, you could pick up a Hopeful Vigil. Great. You could pick up a Prophetic Prism. Great. You can play Ratcatcher Trainee on two, get an attack with it on turn three, because it has first strike, pick it up on turn three with a Celebrant, then redeploy it. Not to say that you won't play Celebrant on later turns or draw it on later turns, but that's the like drafting deck building with optimism part that people are missing a lot of the time, I think. Well, or if you are going to plan to pick up your Fawn's Bane Troll or your Cursed Courtier Hero Token, you can't put it in your three drop slot. Right, like, you leave sure. it in your three drop slot. You're like, yeah, I've got this three drop, but like three mana three two is a card you're very unhappy with, which is what Stockpiling Celebrant is going to be. 
X amount of the time in your deck. But mm-hmm. back to cut in and even stockpiling celebrant too. these synergy cards have pluses and minuses, I think, for drafting, depending on when you take them, right? Like if you mm-hmm. take cut in pack one, pick one, that's like that awkward monstrous rage tension where like, it's good. But do you re- is it good enough that it really makes you want to tunnel in on all the right. types of cards you need to get around it? Or are you hoping to get it like fifth, sixth, seventh pick? I'm much more in that camp for cut in. Like I will yeah. pack one, pick one it. But if I get it early, it's not quite powerful enough for me to want to like heavily incentivize myself towards it. So like that's where you have to have those baseline evaluations back or you have to understand what it's asking of you because synergy cards in draft like if you get them early you're having to make concessions in intrinsic power sometimes to get to maximize those synergy cards like a, a cut in pack one pick two then all of a sudden you're faced between a pick with you know ginger brute or something like hatching plans like are you going to take ginger brute to go with your cut in or are you going to take hatching plans you're probably going to take hatching plans because it's much more powerful than ginger brute you know But you're faced with those kinds of decisions when you want to get in on maximizing those cards that are situationally powerful. Well, and then, yeah, you're like, now hatching plans is my most powerful thing. Hatching plans and cut in probably don't go in the same deck. So now you're starting to diverge between like, you know, that the question of which we'll get to maybe in, you know, three hours is the, the question in draft of, you know, what's the path where I see this card making my deck? Or what's the path where these two cards make my deck? The one I've drafted, the one I'm about to pick. And I think cutting and hatching plants certainly can go in the same deck, but they're not going to be at their best probably in the same deck. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And another great example of a synergy card, but just talked about it, Ginger Brute. Card varies wildly in power level, right? From you might leave it on the sidelines to might be one of the better creatures in your deck. Well, and like something like, once you get two, three ginger brutes, that that really also then starts to boost the power of so many other things, right? Then you're starting to go, man, now Witch's Mark is awesome. Witch's Mark is another card to think about. Like the more I am happy to play that on turn two, and the happy I am, and and that's directly correlated to how many one drops I have, because I want to play that on turn two and I want to get max value, meaning I want to get to do the discard draw two, and I want to get the wicked roll token, I need one drop. So now I've got three ginger brutes, happy to play my my witch's mark, happier to play cut in, happier to play return triumphant. You know, like it it starts to boost up the power. It certainly has that synergistic property, but then there are then also gonna be decks where if I don't the less of those I have, if I don't even have any of those, what am I doing with this ginger brute? You know? Well and that's why the five R's are so good. That's why I say it's the best thing we've done that hasn't caught on because ginger brute is what on the R's? What would you say? It's a role player. A role player, I, I would put it on reward personally, but it's close. Like it's one of yeah. those, right? And then once you get to the scenario you're talking about, like you've collect let's let's even say you put it in role players and you've collected three ginger brutes, all of a sudden those three ginger brutes combined as a role reason. players like bumped up to a reason. <laughs> yeah. Right? And then yeah. like then you get a draft because then you know you have the thing to do you get rid of that awkward tension where you're like, well, do I really want to do this thing that I'm not sure is going to work out? Once you have three ginger brutes, you're pretty sure your deck's going to work out, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, and it's so interesting, like you often sometimes like if a color or color pair is open, man, we're just bopping all over the place. If a color or color pair is open, you can have like these packages. Like you, you know, you see deck builds where people are like, like, what four cuts should I make or whatever? And it's like, well, you have this like eight card ginger brute package which you can either choose to play or choose to not play. 
right? Like you've got this thing that is a core component of your deck. And you and I feel like people want to do half measures of like, I'll probably cut a ginger brute, a cut in a witch's mark. It's like, no, no, no. You're either playing all of those or you're playing none of those. Right. For sure. Yeah. Completely see that. And another one of these that where this episode came from that was floating around in my head was Night of Sweets Revenge. Like this was mm. one I missed on. Like I had heard good, good, good. And I tried it once and it was not good for me. But I I missed putting the right cards around it. And then a couple of weeks ago, you had talked about like, you really want ginger brutes, you really want candy trails. And I was like, oh, duh. Night of Sweets <laughs> Revenge wants food cards. And I wasn't putting the food cards that it wants around it. But different than Sheree in that when you do surround Night of Sweets Revenge with the good food cards, it is very good, like isn't a right. trap. And when I put the right cards around it, I drafted one of the best decks I've drafted all format because you told me the pieces that need to go around it. And I I had done it wrong the first time, so I'd written it off. But just knowing which of those build arounds work or synergy pieces work and how to make them work. It's such a uh, great comparison, I think, between Night of the Sweets Revenge and Charay, because one of the things that's good about the sort of food strategy versus the tap strategy is your deck crumbles without Charay. If you don't draw Charay or if your Charay gets answered, all of your like tap a thing, put three stun counters on it, scry two. It's just garbage without Charay. Whereas, sure, when you don't draw Night of the Sweets Revenge, it's less good, but everything like your commons care about food. Your sweet tooth witches can use it. Your hollow scavengers can use them, right? Your candy trails can just replace themselves. They give you a little bit of card selection, card advantage, whatever card replacement to dig towards your payoffs, whatever. Like there's a lot more going on with the food deck than the tap deck. Yes. Well, and Night of Sweets Revenge, talking about answerable, is also very hard to answer, right? right. This, tick, this ticking time bomb that your opponent doesn't know when you're going to choose to fire it off, but they have to respect. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the next thing to talk about before we get into the draft is format specific. And I think the question here is what are the rules of engagement? And when we say that, like we talked about this a little bit when we were doing our little tweets episode, right? What is the sort of sound bites that you give someone? But there are shifting variables from set to set, like what the magic number is, how whatever. We used to think like speed was part of it, but all magic sets are the same kind of speed these days. But like, you know, how removal matches up against creatures, archetype strength, color strength, all that stuff, mechanic strength for sure. So what are some things that are specific? with regards to that, or some frameworks with regards to that for Wilds of Eldraine. Well, and also those things are going to go to back to the baseline power level. Like those mm. things are going to factor into once you know them, quadrant theory and the five R's and all that stuff. Once you know how important one damage is or three damages or all those things, that affects where those cards end up in your mental tier list. So for example, the magic number, I would say almost in this format is one. And you you had pegged this as early as, you know, pre-playing with the cards. You were like, I don't know about X ones. There's a lot of ways to punish them. And there mm -hmm. are something like flick a coin, two and a red instant, deal one damage, draw a card, make a treasure. Like that could, depending on the format, if there weren't a lot of X ones, that could be unplayable. But there are a lot of cards you want to deal one damage to. You do value the treasure. You value the fixing. Like it just does a lot of things that add up to it being a good card. And it's hard mm -hmm. to know that without having played the format. Totally. I think, yeah, it's interesting. Something like X1 plus X4, like there's two different magic numbers okay. almost. I was going like, to say three is the other one. Like three and then, power and then attacking six, into a four like, blocker. Getting out of range of unbargained grapple and bargained torch and then getting out of range of bargained grapple and cut in is like another level. There are these different sort of tiers 
of magic numbers. Well, and why are those the magic numbers? Like, how do we know that when you're trying to figure uh, out power level, right? You know that because you know Torch the Tower and yes. Candy Grapple are premium Magic the Gathering cards because you've played Magic and you know that those are powerful on the wherever you're rating them. And then because those are powerful, people are going to be picking them highly and you're going to be playing against them all the time. So being able to dodge those then becomes important. Not for me. I have a 51% win rate with Candy Grapple. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, I don't is know. True? Just, yeah, removal is for chumps, I guess. I don't know. I, I can't. I was t- terrified to see that number. Wow. Um, what else What else do you want to look at for uh, for this format? Just understanding what the tier one strategies are, right? Something like Grand Ball Guest. I am certain if we went back and looked at the grades, I gave this like a C minus, a D yeah. plus. The, the one in red, 2-2, two, two, when you celebrate, gets plus one, plus one, and trample. Like... This is, I think in my mind now, I would say a B minus almost like is a, is wow. a pull into red, like red aggressive strategies is the best card, I think, for red aggressive strategies, certainly if you're wanting to celebrate. I also think like you want to think about not only those tier one strategies, but then we get to a point in the in the meta game to use my favorite word, where we want to know what attacks those strategies. What are the best counter strategies, right? What maybe there are these sort of status quo rules of engagement? Are there ways to subvert those? rules and and figure out what goes under them or what's the antithesis to them. I think Kellen's Lightblades is a great example of this sort of like is the poster child poster card for that of the format, the one in a white um, deal three to an attacking or blocking creature. But if it's bargained, you get to just destroy that creature instead. This is just such an incredible, I mean, they talk about splashable for sure, but an incredible piece of interaction for controlling decks. Well, and it's, it's so good because of the rules of engagement, right? The rules of engagement say the best thing to do in the format is to be proactive, to attack, to put your opponent on the back foot. And so all of the people that are trying to do that tier one strategy of, you know, want to beat down, want to be ahead, want to put my opponents on the back foot, don't really want Kellen's Lightblades because then you give your opponent a window to block. I mean, those decks will play that card, but they're not spending a high pick on Kellen's Lightblades. And then if you can position yourself to where you're in maybe a a tier two strategy or a a strategy that is less commonly known as good, you get those Kellen's Lightblades late and it's a premium card for you. Like that's another card whose power level shifts wildly, whether you're aggressive or controlling, right? Mm. So as the controlling player, Kellen's Lightblades is one of the best removal spells in your deck. As an aggressive player, it's you might play it, you might not, depending on what other removal you have, right? Because you want your removal to get your opponent's creatures off the board without them being able to block. And then this is where power is. It's really powerful in the draft as a controlling player to be able to get Kellen's Lightblades late, right? Like mm-hmm. you set yourself up to know, man, I have a really high chance to get powerful cards later than I would expect because I'm playing a counterculture strategy, like based mm-hmm. on what the common wisdom is going on in the format, right? So there's power level in terms of rules of engagement there too that's going on full circle. That's why I like or lately have liked playing offbeat strategies so much because you can you can manufacture power for yourself almost. And then cards that don't fit, again, not to make this just be dumpster on blue-white episode, but Hilda of the Icy Crown, like Mythic for blue-white, four mana, three, four. Whenever you tap a thing uh, that's untapped, you can pay one to you know, get a bunch of really powerful cards. But this is just sort of like charade on steroids in the sense of like, you, that card is great, but what it wants you to the cards that it wants you to put in your deck to make it great are quite bad. 
but it's so I, I have just been on such a card evaluation journey with this. Like as far as our tiers, like I've uh-huh. I've updated our tier list like I don't know a few times in the format, and it started out as like an A plus for me, right? Because like mm-hmm. when you read the card, it looks so absurd, right? All you have to do is tap a thing, and you get a free four four for one mana. Like sign me up, like that. Like without format context, that looks insane to me because I assume it's going to be supported, and it looked like it was when you look at the cards in the format. And then, like, the next time I moved it down to, like, I don't know, an A minus. It's like, ah, this doesn't really get there. And now I've kind of pushed it down to a B. And I I know I'm taking Torch the Tower, like, over Hilda the Icy Crown, pack one, pick one, which is yes. crazy because in a vacuum, Hilda is such a more powerful card, right? Like, if you, like, without knowing any other context in the format. Right. But once you know that context, like, so really it's worse than Torch. So it, I really, I probably need to put it at a B minus, but it's so hard for me to do there because I'm fighting just like what I know as baseline magic uh-huh. evaluations for power, you know? You're fighting intrinsic power versus like putting all of those other lenses over it. Yes. Okay, so now we get to the draft. Yeah. And when we get to the draft, I think the question you really want to be asking that people don't enough is what's the most powerful card in the pack? You ideally should be taking the most powerful card in the pack. I mean, ideally, every pack, you get to do that. But really, for for pack one, you should mostly be able to do it. You shouldn't be making concessions in power level that often in pack one. Once you start to solidify into a color and color pairs, and you know, like, I got to fill out my curve, I need removal, whatever, the other questions you need to ask yourself. But Following that, what's the most powerful card in the pack in a vacuum should lead you towards that as your pick more often than not. Well, and it the caveat is the amount of power level you've already accrued, right? Correct. If you start like, so you're weighting those two things. The less power you have currently, mm-hmm. the more you want to take the best card out of every pack. And if you start with a lot of power, let's say you start with the Gruff Triplets or a Fawn's Bane Troll, the more willing you are to maybe take the second best card in the pack to pair with those. But even then, you're still trying to weigh the gap in power level between the best card and the second best card. You want to talk about LSV's pack one pick one here? I feel I'm, this is another setup for me, huh? I don't think this is a setup for you. Why, why am I setting you up I here? I think I'm getting set up here. <laughs> no, like I'm I, getting set up. So pack one pick one in our team draft, LSV sees the following cards as options. There's Torch the Tower at common, red, deal two. And moving on to uncommons, I think, there's Witch Docker Frenzy, three and a red, instant deal five, cost one less to cast for each creature that attacked this turn. And the rare slot, there's Archon of the Wild Rose, two white, white for a four, four flyer. Other creatures you control that are enchanted by R as you control have base power and toughness, four, four, and have flying. LSV selected Witch Stalker Frenzy. And I'm wondering, there might be team draft implications here, maybe. Sure. Like, certainly going into this. But if this were just a normal draft, I would almost certainly be on Archon of the Wild Rose, pack one, pick one, as what I think the most powerful card in the pack is. Yeah, not only, like, I think this is not only for team draft, but for regular draft, exactly the pick that I would make. And I'm not only going to knock LSV here, but I'm also going to knock our, our good friend and teammate Alex, who, when he got past this pack, took Torch the Tower over Archon of the Wild Rose as well. So LSV got to take Witchlocker Frenzy and float Archon to Marshall, which seems like doubly bad for us. But like, I feel like this is a little bit of a kind of like hipster spike. Oh, I'm just going to take removal in the best color pick over like, for me, this is just Archon is too powerful of a threat to pass up on here. Well, but 
the thing that makes this interesting is all four of us. I mean, like obviously the three of us are not in a Hall of Fame tier. LSB, or whatever, <laughs> right? You know, yeah. but like all four of us, I think, are accomplished Magic players. Like not not accomplished, competent, like drafters. We're all very good at playing limited Magic. LSV probably significantly. LSV, we, we think you're competent, Luis. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is LSV is obviously way better than the three of us. Yes. but we're not we're not slouches either. Yeah. And you and I have different opinions than Alex and LSV, which is interesting. And whoever's correct gets to win more. That's also interesting, right? It's but it's not just but the the it's not just as simple as one of these three picks is quote unquote correct, right? Because it that leads us to your question that you posed last week versus I think it's in our show notes as well, the the idea of what's the right pick, the the rare serpent that has the adventure of like top and attacking creature and it's a six, six flash war two versus welcome to sweet tooth. Like what's the right pick between those two. And your answer is it doesn't matter. And that is, I do think you can make a case for that here with Archon versus one of these red removal spells. Right. I think that's where like, I kind of actually get to the point of disagreeing because there are in different tiers for me. For and you, that's just what yes. it is. Right. So like to me, Archon is a tier above which Darker Frenzy and Torch the Tower. And for Luis and Alex, they're probably all in the same tier and just have different implications for their draft. So like LSV and Alex are saying, eh, these are all similarly powerful cards. I'd rather go down this red route because I think red is the best color. Blah, 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 blah. And removal is a zero-sum game for a team draft. That's is a bomb. Up. I mean, like, in, in Archon. Yes. I mean, right. but those are all the factors that you're considering. And all of us are weighting all of those things. We just have different weights assigned to them, yeah? Mm-hmm. yeah some people don't even get to that step of having those, those tiers or the baseline card evaluations or all those things. So that's where you need to be listening to this episode and try to figure out where you are on this journey you know, to getting better at magic and assigning power level to things. So not only what is the most powerful card in the pack, but when you were selecting a card or thinking about selecting a card, I think the question has to be, what is the path of the draft where this card makes my deck? And that, I think, is not only this card makes my deck or this card plus cards I've drafted go in the same deck, brings us back to the cut-in plus hatching plans pick or decision where you're like, I'll take hatching plans here, but then I'm already thinking... These two cards are probably not going in the same deck. So which one am I going to start to wait more? Which path do I want to push down more? Whatever, right? Are you likely to end up with this card in your deck is such an important question. I feel like people will often, especially as you get deeper into pack two and pack three, they're like, oh, I just took this card. And you're like, is this ever going to end up in your deck? And like, oh, probably not. Like, well, why are you taking it? <laughs> and I think if the answer to that question, is this card likely to end up in my deck is no, there needs to be a significant power level gap between it and the card that is likely to end up in your deck, right? So you're more willing to, we call it taking a flyer, you're more willing to take a flyer on a much more powerful card than something that's a replacement level or a role player in your deck. That's that's the kind of thing you need to be weighing. So if, if you say, is this card likely to make my deck? No. Is it really good? Yes then maybe I'm still going to take it if it's really powerful, you know? Like if you have a really good start for whatever, uh, a white red deck, and then you get to pick five and there's a hatching plans and like no good red or white cards, like we're talking whatever, a frost bridge guard is the white common and then the single red plus one plus oh first strike trick is the red common. But just take hatching plans. Like you're probably going to end up in red white if you've got a really good red white start for your first four picks. But the 
of the time where this hatching plans leads you towards, oh, there's a Johan in the next pack. And now I get to play the torch that I drafted and whatever. And now I do end up going blue red. You're going to be really happy you took that hatching plans and you're just not going to miss the cards that you passed up on for the 90 or 95% of the time where you still end up red white. Right. And and thinking about it in terms of like gambling or poker odds, that way is a, a good way to frame it. So we've got an example here from the discord. Pack one, pick one, you selected Witch Stalker Frenzy. Pack one, pick two, see the following cards as options. Hatching plans, the enchantment that you sacrifice it, draw three. Greta Sweet Tooth Scourge, the, the black green uncommon 3-3 three, three that gives you a food. Or Ginger Brute. What do you like there and why? Well, for me, I think it's, what do I think the best card in the pack is versus what is the best card that goes with Witch Stalker Frenzy? For me, the best card in the pack is Greta. Sweet Tooth Scourge. And for me, the card that goes best with what I've taken already is Ginger Brute, right? Red, Ginger Brute, in, in my mind, is already a secret red card most of the time. And Witch Stalker Frenzy is great. Ginger Brute is great. Feels like the power level gap there for me is too great to not just take what I think the best card in the pack is, which is going to be Greta. It's interesting. So I, I end up on the middle card, actually. I end up on Hatching Plans. Yeah, yeah. Because... I, I like you're Witch doing, Doctor you're doing your hipster, your hipster, <laughs> like I'm, I'm subverting the meta pick here where you like, you like hatching. I, I think hatching plans is very powerful. Yeah. And I don't think you can go wrong between hatching plans or Greta Sweet Tooth Scourge. They just imply yes. different things, right? Correct. Greta implies that you are unlikely to play Greta and Witch Doctor Frenzy in the same deck. Not you impossible, could, you could but splash, unlikely. You could splash red. Yeah. Yes. Not impossible, but unlikely. Hatching plans gives you close to the same power level as Greta with the promise of maybe I play both of these in the same deck, much more likely that that is the mm-hmm. outcome, which is why I think I would take Hatching Plans or Ginger Brute, which goes with Witch Talker Frenzy. And then that's where you're like doing the synergy thing to try to maximize red, all that other stuff. But for me, the gap in power level, that's where you have to have good senses of the power level gap between cards. That power level gap is too great there. Like someone commented in the Discord, is it crazy to take Ginger Brute here, to think about Ginger Brute here? And my, my answer to that is yes, because Hatching yeah. Plans and Greta are both so much more intrinsically powerful than Ginger Brute. I agree. I think another way to to frame this, like the path of the draft where the card makes my deck, are you likely to end up maximizing this card in your deck to go back to Kellen's Light Blades and that idea of it's going to be so much better in a a reactive, defensive, controlling, however you want to frame it, that kind of a deck than it is going to be. Like I'm really hoping to not play Light Blades in my red-white aggro decks. Um, And so that's the sort of thing where you're like, well, it's a great removal spell in my colors. Gotta go at least a level deeper than that to be like, yeah, but is this the card that's going to be like progressing my deck's game plan the most? And the answer is absolutely not. Right. So some more draft examples here uh, to kind of solidify the things we've already talked about. Here's an example. You have Torch the Tower and Picnic Ruiner for your first two picks. Pack one, pick three. Do you want to take Cut In? versus Candy Grapple or a Witch's Vanity. Which of those do you like and why? So cut in the four mana deal for Candy Grapple, the the 1B minus three minus three, and Witch's Vanity is the saga that destroys something mana value two or less. I also feel like I could do about 12 minutes on Candy Grapple versus Witch's Vanity because I still don't really know the answer to that question. I love Witch's Vanity a lot. Oh, that is a clear candy grapple for me. Like, yeah, I, I know, <laughs> I know, I know. Um, yeah, candy grapple is better. But well, like, the, but again, that's, it's that I think I just really value ceilings so much. Like that turn two Witch's Vanity, ceiling on that. Oof, that's high, baby. It um, is high. This, I think for me, so th- the reason this is an interesting pick is Cut-in is clearly worse than Candy Grapple. Yes. But cut-in gets you deeper into red. You've got Torch, you've got Picnic Ruiner. And Picnic Ruiner is interesting because 
while you don't have to have access to the adventure, you'd like to have access to the adventure. So whether that means your red green beats or whether that means your red X with some sort of fixing to splash that adventure portion, that does have some considerations here as well. For me, this is, I, I would, I hate to use the clear word, but I'm going to say this is a clear cut in for me because I want to get deeper in like cut in is not that much worse in the context of these picks, like getting deeper into red and aggressive start for red that I don't feel like I'm sacrificing that much. Whereas I don't want to, I really value the openness of getting a third red card and not dipping my toe into a second color just yet. Right. This is, this is such a beautiful example here of power, like the many different ways that you can have power, right? If you put Candy Grapple against Cut-In, even in the context of the format, Candy Grapple wins, I think, not not close to close. Not close, not close. In terms of intrinsic power level. But there's power level in the draft too, right? We know flexibility is super powerful. And like, you could make the case that like seeing a Candy Grapple pack one, pick three is a signal and maybe you should move into black because it's a signal. I think that's kind of false thinking because you are like, all of your cards are such, they're in the same tier of power level, like Torch, Picnic Ruiner, Cut In. I mean, Candy Grapple might be a cut above, but it's not, like, as you said, it's not that much different. So what you gain by taking Cut In here is so much power in the course of the draft and synergy in that your cards all clearly want to go together. Like Picnic Ruiner is a great two, wants you to have removal to get things out of the way. Where's a young hero roll token? Like no one's business. Yeah. All those sorts of things. And then also like getting into deck building, right? Once you have Torch, Picnic Ruiner, Cut In, those are three cards that all want to go in the same style of deck. So you're mm-hmm. starting to get to that point we talked about with the three Ginger Brutes, where like all of a sudden you're bumping your things up from role players or rewards to reasons to like, once you get a critical mass, you're like, yeah, I'm I'm doing this thing and I'm going to be a red aggressive deck and Cut In all- gets you closer to that, which bumps its power level up versus Candy Grapple. Whereas if you take Candy Grapple, you've got a torch, a picnic ruin or Candy Grapple and no real clear path forward through the draft. Like next pack, if you see another good red card and another black card, what are you going to do? Like, right. You know what I mean? Like then you end up in these, like you can potentially end up in awkward spots as well. All right. How about this? You start off with the aforementioned rare Archon of the Wild Rose. Pack one, pick two, you see a hopeful vigil, the one in a white enchantment that makes a 2-2, or Torch the Tower. I mean, for me, it's a clear hopeful vigil because because of the tier I would put Archon of the Wild Rose in. But this was in the Discord as well, and there were people on the other side of it that were like, you know, want Torch the Tower over hopeful vigil, Torch is a better card. And it is, certainly, but not they're in the same tier in that like torches are almost almost the same tier here's why let me be a little more clear about this so i think torch is a a cut above right it's it's a more premium magic the gathering card than hopeful vigil but both of them are the The best best cards in in their in their respective colors right so like yes you're not taking the best card out of the pack but you're taking the best common in a color that goes with your archon in a color that also i think this is something that's underappreciated about white all of its good commons play well with themselves like you you get a package in white of cards that go really well together that are also probably going to go along well with your archon of the wild rose whereas Torch the Tower sets you up down a path where you're you're much more likely to potentially move off of Archon of the Wild Rose. Like you're, basically your options are draft red white or or pivot off of Archon in some senses. Whereas 
Hopeful Vigil, this is another thing where like immediate power right now versus power in the draft. Hopeful Vigil gives you much more power in the course of the draft than selecting towards the tower does. Yeah, I love it. All right, next example. Pack one, pick one. Scalding Viper versus Hatching Plans. What do you say there? So Scalding Viper is the rare, the blue-red adventure to one that pings your opponent and Hatching Plans is that enchantment that draws three. Uh, for me, this is a pretty clear Hatching Plans. I-, I have these in pretty different tiers in my mind. And again, maybe this is ceiling versus not. But like, I just think Hatching Plans is awesome. And, and one of the things that I like... And we haven't quite touched on this either. Like taking a card like Hatching Plans already starts to then bump up other cards that I already want to take. Like I want to take cards that say bargain on them, right? As as we've talked about, we didn't maybe say this explicitly when we were talking about rules of engagement, but one of the rules of engagement of this format is bargain is upside. Bargain isn't downside. It's not um, modal. Bargain is just upside. Having the word bargain on a card makes it better. Um, And so then and having a card like Hatching Plans to bargain is also great. And I do think Hatching Plans is splashable too, as long as I'm not in an aggressive deck. So I, I like Hatching Plans more. This is so interesting. I feel like I just understood something about your soul in Magic the Gathering right now. So I I would be on Scalding Viper here. And I, okay. I, don't, th- I don't think it really matters. But what uh. you just said to me about hatching plans explains so much of why you're so much better at cube than I am. <laughs> like, because uh. to me, hatching plans, I agree that bargains upside. But to me, in the draft, hatching pl- pick, taking hatching plans here narrows Narr- yes. my options yes. in the future because it's going to require me to take bargain cards. And yes, those cards are upside, but I might have to take bargain cards over another card I might actually want more. Like hatching plans requires things of me in the future of the draft, whereas Scalding Viper to me is similar power level, but requires nothing of me. Right. It's just going to do its thing on its own every time. It needs no help. Yes. But that's uh, the way you're framing it is so interesting. And I I would say like I would take Scalding Viper, but this again to me doesn't really matter. I wouldn't say either one is right or wrong or a mistake or better. It sounds like you would. You think taking Scalding Viper is a mistake? Just for me. Like again, because I think Viper is going to be maximized. I think it's partially because one of the things I've realized about myself from the, my own personal data is that I'm not allowed to draft green, just full stop. Like, <laughs> I'm just not that's, allowed. That's because where I'm at too. I'm really down on green. I just can't win with it. I don't win with it. And I'm not good at building blue-red decks in this format. I think I can identify... When the deck is open, I think I can draft it just fine. But then I end up with 46 playables and I am not sure (laughs) what the right puzzle pieces are for the deck. And so Scalding Viper, in my mind, I'm like, this is a good card. It's going to set me down a path that I'm not particularly confident I can follow very well. That's fair. And I, I would say it doesn't really matter. And you just have to know the pros and cons of each pick, right? Yeah. There's There are benefits and, and cons to both. All right, last draft example here. Pack one, pick one. You have Horned Lock Whale. That's the blue rare six mana, six, six flash. Um, it has the adventure of returning and attacking a blocking creature to the top of it or bottom of its owner's library, their choice. Pack one, pick two. You see the following cards as options. There's Red Cap Thief, the two, three that brings a treasure. Red Tooth Vanguard, the three, one in green that you can rebuy when an enchantment enters the battlefield or Shatter the Oath, three black, black, destroy a creature. So this is such a great example that you've crafted here, Ben, because... This is real life on the Discord, baby. This is real life. Real, real life. life. Um, Red Tooth Vanguard is clearly the most powerful card among these three choices, in my yes. mind. Yes, different tier. Different tier, right? I don't think if we're going to put an R on it, I think it's still probably a reward, like not really a reason I'm fighting over green for this or whatever. It does pull me into green. It's a really good two drop. It's recursive, whatever. But blue-green is one of, if not the least 
desirable color pairs to end up in. So when I take Red Tooth Vanguard here and think about what is the path where both of these cards make my deck, it's a pretty narrow path. It's pretty unlikely. And Hornlock Whale, you be like, well, you can splash it, but you can splash the adventure, but you can't really splash the whale because it's double blue. So, and you can't splash Red Tooth Vanguard because it's a two drop. So like there's this sort of, you already know the only world where these two cards really end up in your deck is one where you just end up with an abundance of fixing and your oops all good cards. But the more likely one is where you end up in blue green. Well, but you say that, like, you know that I think not knowing that is a place where you can fall into a trap too, yes, like in your yes. power level, your card evaluation skill. That's something you have to know. Like if yes. you want to be successful in the format. But I would still take Vanguard here because red, the power level gap between it and the two other cards, Red Cap Thief and Shatter the Oath, is so great that like I'm still going to give more weight to blue cards in the future of the draft because Hornlock Whale is so good. I would like to end up in a base blue deck, which probably ends up leaving Red Tooth Vanguard on the sidelines. But I am more personally interested in taking the best card out of the pack when I can, and this feels like a spot to do so. Let me ask you this. Do you it. Said, you said you, Ethan Sachs, were not allowed to draft green. Are you? What's the likelihood where Red Tooth Vanguard makes your deck? I'm not allowed to draft green, but like I'm also not allowed to not take the best card in the pack. See, I would take red cap thief here boo what a just a hipster spike doofus pick here <laughs> i don't think so i think there's enough dissonance between red tooth vanguard and Hornlock whale and Hornlock whale is like a couple tiers ahead of red tooth vanguard for second me second best rare in the set according to 17 lands Hornlock whale yeah wow that is not possibly true <laughs> But anyway, speaking speaking of, can I can I? Uh, sorry, I'm gonna just get off off the rails here because we already are. But okay. I'm I have I have now no kappa. I think Imidane's recruiter is the best pack one pick one in the format. Yeah, I owe Imidane's recruiter an apology. <laughs> it's very good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, sorry, so apologies to 17 lands. Apologies to Imidane's recruiter. But I will butt up against Horned Lock Whale being the second best <laughs> rare in the set. Card's very good. Not the second best rare in the set, in my opinion. But I think the power level gap between Hornlock Whale and Red Tooth Vanguard is so great that the likelihood that I'm interested in abandoning, like, it goes back to the question you said that people need to ask themselves more about drafts is what is the path where Red Cap or Red Tooth Vanguard makes my deck? That path for me personally is low. so unlikely. Oh, you're right. I, nah, I hate it. You're right. You're so right. That I, path I'm is really low. Really unlikely to play Red Tooth Vanguard. And I'm pretty likely to want either Red Cap Thief or like Red Cap Thief in tandem with Horned Lock Whale. And Red Cap Thief overshadowed the oath because maybe blue, slight, slight nod to blue red, but also just the the very real Red Cap Thief ramps you to Hornlock Whale. That and also like all of these options, if you boil it down, are pretty mediocre, right? Correct. And like when you're you don't give a lot of weight to this pick, right? We're not giving hardly any weight to this pick. And I think in those spots, you want the cheaper card also mm-hmm. because it frees you up for higher higher mana value stuff later. But there's also like some old school world where like shatter the oath removal. Of course, you take the removal. Like there's also that kind of old school mentality too. But I, I really like Red Calf Thief here. Okay, let's move on to deck building, right? So after we've drafted, it's kind of takes place in the draft portion. If you're doing it, if you're doing the Ethan Sachs method, it certainly does because you just get to deck building <laughs> and you add your lands and you go. If you're Ben, you got to cut everything and re-add it, whatever. First question, like what's the deck's game plan? Right. What what sort of like do you have like a one sentence elevator pitch for the deck or can you even just put it under its aggro, its control, its attrition, its combo, whatever? Well, one other thing to shout out here, I do think deck building, as you said, takes place during the draft portion. I think you need to be careful about putting a label on that too early. Like you really want to have hit 
critical mass or like really be locked in before you're starting to put those kinds of labels on your deck because otherwise you're potentially cutting paths off for yourself in the draft. But I think yes. once you hit that can benefit you to add that label because then you're going to mm-hmm. start to make better picks. And the other thing to shout out about game plans and just a power level, cards that fit into more game plans are more powerful, right? It's one of the reasons Torch the Tower is great because it's great in aggro and great in control, whereas Kellen's Lightblades only truly excellent in control. Yes. Um, we already sort of talked about this in terms of curve, but like another question, what does the deck need to succeed? So this happens, let's say you're you're in that spot where you're like, okay, these are the 15, 16 cards, maybe it's higher. I know I'm playing. What are these last? I've got 10 cards I can choose my last few additions from. How am I going to build this deck optimally? Well, what does it need to succeed? Thinking about holes in the deck, thinking about your curve. We talked about curve as a consideration for cards like stockpiling celebrant and witch's mark. Your deck needs ways to win, right? Like I joke about people are always like, well, what is your win condition? Like anything really can be a win condition, but this goes back to game plan. Like how do you foresee victories happening with your deck and whether that's with, okay, I'm the dust is going to settle and I need this I've got these a few evasive threats to finish the job or, or whatever it is. So why threat density is so important in aggressive decks because you can't be like, oh, I'm just going to curve out and beat down. It's like, well, you have 13 creatures. So what happens when your opening hand is one creature, two removal spells, and that one creature gets picked off? It's going to be so hard for you to enact your deck's game plan. Right. Well, and some of it isn't fixable too. Like we do a lot of deck techs yes. on stream or in coaching. Like somebody's like, what should I do here? And I'm like, well, there's like something went wrong in the draft because you're like an aggressively slanted deck, but you've got three, two drops. So that means your cut-ins are going to be worse and da, 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 da. And like, I can pick apart the deck. And the question I have is how, how did we end up here? Like from the draft, the thing that I am always like, and this is really a shout to like, thank God we have 17 lands and access to our draft logs. Obviously if you play on magic online, you can check the save draft logs box in your like cog options settings. If you don't know that, and then you can use magic fluey to upload your draft logs to, I am just surprised that we get, I mean, we get infinitely more deck techs than draft reviews. Whereas I completely agree with what you're saying. The draft is where the problem is. It's not in the, I've navigated this draft perfectly, and now how do I assemble the pieces well? It's usually like, what's going, how, how do we get here? What? How do we end up with this? And almost there's always this, this sort of like, it's like, oh, pack one, pick two, you did, you made this mistake. Right, it's that ripple effect, right? It's like, the ripple. And it goes, it goes all the way back to, do you have good card evaluation fundamentals in quadrant theory and those five R's and everything? Like, that's step one. And then you're weighing all that against other options, like all those things we talked about in the draft examples. And then you're getting to deck building. And we've talked about this again with the cut in with ginger brew. Maybe we have a couple more examples here, but a question of why is a card stronger in one deck than another? That's a question you are asking during the draft, but certainly asking in deck building. Right. Welcome to Sweet Tooth, a premium example. This is the one green saga makes a one one, gives you a food and then puts plus one plus one counters on something equal to one plus the number of foods you have. Worst case, it's a two mana three three on delay, assuming your opponent well, oh. doesn't interact with your one one or whatever. Yeah. But best case, like you're curving out, you know, ginger brute <laughs> into welcome to sweet tooth, into sweet tooth witch, and then all of a sudden, like you have some your gigantic threat. Five. Yeah. yeah. Like there's there's some incredible curves with welcome to sweet tooth, and that goes back to synergy. But then the other thing that's awesome about welcome to sweet tooth is like super high ceiling, but the floor is also pretty high. That's why it's such a premium card. But then it's going to its level of premiumness is going to vary based on the other cards you put around it. Like, I don't think you're ever cutting Welcome to Sweet Tooth from a deck. 
in the format. No. I can't imagine that, but it's going to be way better depending on the number of cards that say and make food on them in your deck. Speaking of a great card that I can see cutting from a deck, Hopeless Nightmare. This was on my list of five underrated cards. I think it's, in my mind, still the second best black common, but we talked about it when I was talking about it being underrated, is there are black decks where I don't play this. I end up with it in my pile and I don't think it fits, right? Where is it going to be best? Well, or maybe talk about where where is it going to be best? Well, it's going to be best in a deck that has lots of bargain, right? Because it's excellent bargain fodder. It's going to be great in a deck where you can maybe pick it up. So you've got Stockpiling Celebrant to pick it up. That'd be great. Um, great if you can maybe recur it, get it out of the graveyard with Neva. I don't know. So obviously, maybe that ceiling means it's black-white. But it also goes in any sort of non-aggressive decks that don't have synergy with it, right? The, the times where I've cut it are like black-red decks with high creature counts that don't have bargain. Or are, and slash, those decks often have tons of bargain fodder because there are rat tokens running around or food tokens running around. Like red-black makes rectangles and spades. And so you don't actually need that hopeless nightmare. Whereas sometimes when you're in blue-black, like blue doesn't make a lot of bargain fodder. And so you're looking for, well, what am I going to cut for my... Um, what am I going to cut for my Tenacious Tome Seeker or my Johan Stopgap? That sort of thing. Well, and so this is a card. We're talking about power level. Has a very wide range in power level, right? right? Super, super low floor, very high ceiling. And I don't get a play with it much because I think, and this goes back to maybe how you and I approach draft a little bit differently. Like if you're taking Hopeful Nightmare aggressively or Hopeless Nightmare aggressively, it really reduces the types of cards you're interested in, right? So if we're, if we're on the five R's, this is like a a premium reward for mm-hmm. me, like in that deck. I just don't get into that deck often because I don't have the reasons to get into that deck as often, mm-hmm. I think. But it's a it's a great example of a card that can be one of the best cards in your deck or left on the sidelines, depending on the cards you surround it with. And you don't get to understanding that if you're not asking all of these questions, right? If you're not if you're not starting with the base level of card evaluation and coming into the format with those answers, if you're not asking yourself those questions during the draft of like, how am I going to maximize this card? What is the path where it ends up in my deck? What's What are the best decks where this card goes? What are the worst decks? Whatever. Like, does this go actually go with the cards I've drafted so far? Like, if you're not asking those questions, you're not going to end up with, well, you're certainly not going to end up with any answers to them because you're not asking them, but you're just not going to end up with maximizing the resources you're given in every draft. Well, and I think the last thing that you need to do here, if you're wanting to get better at all this stuff too, you got to to ask those questions, but you have to put yourself in a position to ask those questions a lot. Like, I think you just need to, there's a certain baseline of playing magic that you yeah. have to do if you want to get to this level of independent card evaluation and thinking about the game and understanding what's powerful and why. There's a certain number of games you have to have logged in the format to put yourself in the positions to feel the cards against each other. Like a lot of it for me at this point, like after you've got good card evaluation fundamentals and other things is a feel thing. Oh, that felt really powerful when I picked up (laughs) Hopeless Nightmare when I cast my stockpiling celebrate, you know, and there's no shortcut for just actually playing magic. So you might you might be at a cap like if you only draft once a week for how much level of an in-depth understanding you're going to get. And complementing it with podcasts and certain other things will definitely help. But there's a certain amount of just getting in there that you need to do. Well, and that's to, I think, really dive into the nitty gritty as we, that's what we do on this show is we really want to look at that week to week, like what's going on here, whatever, 
what is the counter strategy, et cetera. Someone in Discord was asking recently about like, what do you do if you're drafting Cube or Chaos or a set you're not familiar with? Like, what are some like the like how do you succeed there? And my answer was like the the real like if you can't do if you're really just like gonna go in blind, like you just gotta rely on broader heuristics like cab style decks, cards that affect the board state, just building good curves, fundamentals, high creature count, removal, however you're going to interact. And also maybe you you then rely on signposts a little more or just thinking about, you know, what are these color? Red, white is usually aggressive. Blue, white is usually tempo flyers. Black, green is usually grindy graveyard stuff. Like there are some sort of truths that can lead you towards how cards are going to succeed or be their best or those ceilings, which is that's where you want to end up. Well, and certainly in cube, like you assume the cube is well built, right? So there shouldn't right. be traps like charade. Like so in cube asking what does this card want of me should be a much more fundamental way to maximizing the cards you see in draft in cube. Oh, I have a, a good buddy who uh, he loves building like weird wacky cubes and he has this like crazy too many card artifact cube. And then he kept putting in these artifact hosing cards. I was like, you can't do this. You can't like tell me as the drafter, like what you want to do is X and then like get to have this one card that shatterstorms my <laughs> whole strategy. You're just not allowed to do it in my opinion. Yeah. Um, okay. So we've drafted, we've built the deck. What happens in the game? There's a ton of room to maximize the power level of your cards in game also. And that is probably a whole nother episode and style of episode in and of itself. But just to leave you with a quick example here, something like Torch the Tower we've talked about a lot, right? Torch the Tower's power level comes from being one mana. So like if you find yourself in a spot where you have to or feel like you have to fire off Torch the Tower on turn three maybe to kill your opponent's spellbook vendor, like, yeah, good that you got to kill your opponent's spellbook vendor, but Torch the Tower is significantly less powerful when you're leaving mana on the table than if you manage to cast it on a turn when you, maybe turn four, you played a three drop and played Torch the Tower. And that's a very basic example about mana efficiency, but there's so much room to try to manufacture your cards being better than your opponent's in gameplay as well. So I think some some broad, like because we can only really get broad here, I think, questions that you're not asking yourself, right? Certainly maximizing mana efficiency. What's the most mana efficient play I can make? It cannot be understated. I think this is the number one gameplay question that people do not ask themselves. And it's not to say that you need to be a slave to the mana efficiency answer, but that should be your default of what you're going to do. So you should always be aware of these are the, I whatever, I have four mana available. I can either play this four drop, these two two drops, play this two drop, use this, crack this food, whatever. Like these are the permutations I have to use all four mana. Which one of those do I think is best? And do I have any strong reason to deviate? There will certainly be, I've got three mana, but you're facing down a spellbook vendor and your opponent is tapped out. They haven't gotten any value from it. Sure, it's horribly mana inefficient, to play Torch the Tower on the Spellbook Vendor here rather than your three drop. But I would much rather do that now than play my three drop. They untap, they play a land, they play a two drop, they get a roll token. And now I've let them accrue extra value from this card, which I think is worth less to me than just killing it and burning two of my mana. So those are the sort of deviations from the norm that you want to think about. But what if 
you have that three drop, you have another three drop, and you know you're going to make your fourth land drop. Does that change the equation at all? Like, are you going to play three it, drop and then three drop plus towards the tower? I mean, again, like any magic, like any good magic question, the answer is it depends. depends. Right. But like, yeah, I was just trying, I was just trying to come up with something quick and easy to to grok there, Ben. Thanks this for making this more episode is not easy. Is this going to be our longest non-crash course episode? Not close. Right? Not close to close. <laughs> the so, what's the most mana efficient thing you can do? What are the most, what's your most aggressive play for the turn? What's your most defensive play for the turn? Like, how can you, understanding that who's the beat down? Because I think I see a lot of people making half measures. They, they attack one turn, then they don't attack the next or whatever. Like, you're not really threading the needle of the through line through your turns. The next thing that, the, this is such a big question no one asks, what is my opponent likely to do? <laughs> I'm, I coach people, they go, so we go to attacks. We attack all. And I'm I'm already thinking like, well, I've already played out in my head. We make these attacks. Our opponent's going to line up these blocks. And that looks bad. And I go, what? Okay, if we attack, what are they going to do? And then there's a pause because they haven't considered that. It's like, oh, okay, yeah, I guess I can answer that question. So anticipating that, what does, okay, you've, you're picking up little pieces of information. I'm not talking about tells. I'm just talking about maybe it's, and I'm not even talking about arena pauses, but just they left this mana open. They made this, they attacked their 2-2 into my 3-3 when I was tapped out. That's, there are things there that you're like, if your opponent is a maniac, you're probably going to win the game anyway. So let's assume your opponent is of sound body and mind and is making that attack with an intention. Okay, if you were them, why would you do that? If I attack, are they likely to block? Are they likely to decide to race? What is their likely play? Like, have they played a removal spell this game? That probably means they have. If not, they probably have one in their hand, right? These sort of trying to get down the line. And if you can do that for just like the next phase, great. But you're going to start to be able to anticipate full turn cycles too, right? That's how you get to that point of like, I understand the pace of the game and I see three turns down the line, I have lethal and I'm working from that here. And those are the like, the games where then when you're the opponent and you're not on that level, you're like, how did I lose? What happened? It's like, because your opponent was thinking about the end game four turns ago. Yeah, for sure. And the last thing is sideboarding. Like, are you sideboarding well? What should you be doing in sideboarding? Those kinds of questions. You're black, white tech, from your PT run, like the when you saw that your opponent was playing big dum dums on the blue green side, and you were like, "Oh, this is kind of bad." Like my my red removal spells don't match up well. But wait, I have these cooped ups. Like, what could I do? And your black white deck offered you a ton of removal that is normally like C plus ish, but you know what your opponent's playing. And so like you cited in cards that you knew would be powerful against them, which also made the cards they were playing less powerful like you're mm -hmm. just shifting power all over the place by lining up your cards well against your opponents inside boarding it just brings us back to the main question what is power <laughs> w-o-e-r listen I, I thought that was a banger title banger title let us know in the discord <laughs> <laughs> um what a great idea for an episode this was so fun it was fun like, it was very good magic yeah, is great I yeah, I have not seen us this excited. So many questions where I yeah, I was nervous. I was like, I think I'm going to answer differently than Ben here. But that's not the, again, we say this a lot. That's not the point. The point isn't there's a right answer to these questions. There's a right answer of, and we've, we say this a lot, so I hope hopefully people are really, we're hammering this home of, there's not a right answer to, okay, pack one, pick one, you got this. Pack one, pick two, this card versus this card. 
when we say clear, it's a clear X for me. That doesn't mean it's a clear X for you. It could be a clear Y for you. The important thing is you have to be asking the questions and understanding the implications of those picks, because if you don't, that's where you get into trouble, I think. Well, right. And much like I think in tiers of cards, there's like almost tiers of picks. Like when it's Uh clear for me, like I think I would say clear when I say clear for me, I would say clear choice for most people Uh or you're taking a significant hit in win percentage. Like that that would be the what I would say where the where the trade off is. Once I use clear in a draft pick, I would say if you're not taking this pick. I'm pretty confident you're taking a hit in win percentage by making the wrong pick. That, that's what I would say. But certainly, yes, have just the reasons and the critical thinking and the questions you're asking yourselves, all of that. So, so, so good. All right. You can't possibly have any more parting thoughts before we go. I mean, just try me, baby. You think, I, you think I'm out of gas 100 am, minutes deep? I'm feeling like a little exhausted here. That was like some high, high energy bopping. Yeah, yeah, that was good. All right. Great place to wrap us up. Thank you, as always, to Salty Pretzels for our intro and outro music. Make sure you give it a listen. Thank you so much to CoolStuffInc.com for sponsoring this podcast. If you're heading over there, and we highly encourage you to do so, when you check out, when you're purchasing your boxes for your closet or for drafting or your board games or whatever, please use code LOL at checkout to let them know we sent you there, but more importantly, to get 5% off anything you purchase. You can find all of our content on our website at lordsoflimited.com, links to our tier list, our merch over at Public, our Patreon page as well, and of course, our episode backlog that's all available at lordsoflimited.com. If you've got any feedback about the show or any questions, shoot us an email at lordsoflimited at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week for another episode of Lords of Limited. Thanks, everybody. See you later. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.